This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Intense debate over the Build Back Better legislation has triggered stern lectures by fiscal conservatives about overspending. The legislation, which hangs in the political balance between progressive lawmakers and conservative Democrats like Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, costs a mere $175 billion each year, adding up to $1.75 trillion over 10 years. But now, there's hardly a squeak of protest from Cinema, Manchin and their Republican colleagues about Biden's proposed military budget of $753 billion per year, which is more than four times the annual cost of the Build Back Better legislation. According to the Security Policy Reform Institute, quote, this amounts to an increase of well over $12 billion, meaning that Biden boosted Pentagon funding by an amount roughly equivalent to the CDC's entire annual budget. My guest is Stephen Semler, co-founder of the Security Policy Reform Institute. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So this is, uh, of course, not surprising to progressives who've been following military budget discussions for years. It seems as though Democrats often like to outdo their Republican colleagues in proposing spending increases uh, even greater than uh, their predecessors. Biden is no exception. And it's such an obvious contrast between these two big spending bills we're not seeing very much in the media about it. We're not seeing very much from members of Congress about it other than, say, Bernie Sanders or AOC, right? That's correct. Um, looking at the costs of the of the two bills that you mentioned, the military budget versus the Build Back Better Act, it's amazing how uh, hydraulic the system is. Um, they cut $25 billion for home care uh, as part of cutting the bill in half. Um, meanwhile, Congress increased Biden's increase to the military budget by 25 billion at, this, at roughly the same time. So what we're seeing is, you know, two concepts of, of spending, social spending and military spending, that play by two separate set of uh, spending rules. So the uh, Build Back Better legislation gets touted by its 10-year cost. It's a $1.7 trillion bill, whereas the military budget gets touted by its annual cost um, of uh, $753 billion. Is that part of the disconnect, especially for the public, which may not be wrapping its head around the fact that the Build Back Better bill and also the infrastructure bill that just passed, these were 10-year spending bills. These were, you know, th these, tr these amounts sound like huge amounts, trillion plus dollars, but that's spread out over 10 years, right? And I'm wondering if there's a little bit of disconnect in the public and the media doesn't help us. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's it's fair to a certain extent because the military budget is reauthorized and reappropriated every year. So it's a one it's on a one year term. And, you know, the total package of the Build Back Better Act is one point seven five trillion. But what falls out of context is media, the media uses a trillion to get clicks. I mean, it's it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a highlight real number. It's larger than a billion and a million, obviously. So people want to, you know, see what what the story is all about. Well, the military budget, if you stretch it out based on the Senate Democrats' uh, predictions, based on the specifically the Senate Appropriations Committee's uh, predictions on a 10-year spending plan, you get $8.3 for Pentagon spending compared to $1.75 trillion over the same time period. Right. So you're basically um, you're uh, projecting what you think the increases will be year by year. 
And when you add that up over 10 years, it isn't just 7.53 trillion, which is 10 times this year's, but it actually ends up being more than 8 trillion unless Congress starts to whittle down. I mean, just the idea of making the increase smaller than expected often generates anger. Forget about decreasing the budget. It's never decreased. It only goes up and up and up and up, right? Exactly right. And the fear of Biden going into office was that the debate him and Trump had are over who could be tougher, more manly over China uh, during the, the general election period or right during the lead up to the general election uh, would carry over and spill over into Biden's policy. Um, if Biden was serious about you know, charting a new path in foreign policy, he would have reduced the Pentagon budget at least by 30 to 50 billion. Um, that would be a, about like the average the U.S. spent in Afghanistan over the last few years. But instead, he Biden himself asked for a 12 billion dollar increase. And then the way he structured the budget basically told Congress, yes, you're free to add another 25 billion to it. And and last week, I believe, or a couple weeks ago, Biden came out in support of the now $778 billion military budget. And of course, um, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, who seem so troubled by the cost of any spending legislation that puts either more money into the hands of Americans or just offers them greater support, they don't seem at all troubled by the size of the military budget. No, not at all. And it's really, it flies in the face of the narrative that there are fiscal conservatives in the Democratic Party, um, given their specific votes. I mean, Cinema, since she's been in Congress, she's only been in the Senate for a few years, but she's been, she was in the House before that. Cinema's voted for the last seven military budgets in a row, or at least since 2013. Manchin has voted for every single one since he entered Congress in 2011, or, or at least had the chance to vote on the military budget. The total cost of those votes uh, added up. For cinema, it's close to $6 trillion over those years when you add up all the money she's voted to authorize in military spending. And for Manchin, it's $7.54 trillion. You add up the last you know, 10 military budgets he's voted for. So really, I mean, no one in government is or in Congress is afraid of spending money. It's just for what purpose? Um, and as a result, um, you see a, height, a heightened focus based on Republican opposition to social spending. But the media doesn't do their due diligence in, in calling out their uh, uh, hypocrisy regarding the deficit. And also suddenly there's no fear about taxes being increased because um, Republicans and their fiscal conservative colleagues in the Democratic Party often say, well, if we're going to spend this much, we're going to have to raise taxes on people. Well, it's the same pot of money that this is coming out of the federal, you know, the, the Treasury, the revenues that are generated from taxes. If we keep spending money on the military, that's never seen as problematically causing an in increase in a potentially a potential increase in taxes. Uh, they're also, of course, afraid of taxing the rich and of corporate taxation, all of which could go toward social spending. But also cutting the military budget could go towards social spending. Um, there's also this issue of inflation, right? We're hearing so much about inflation as being caused by the jobless benefits that people got during the pandemic. Even Mr. Biden himself, who's, you know, was proud about the fact that Americans, some Americans got $1,400 checks, um, cited that as a cause for inflation. Why is that also not a cause? Uh, why is military spending also not a cause for inflation then? It's a widespread belief in Washington that um, 
military spending is just outside of normal politics. And when you're in normal politics, you are met with austerity measures. But if you're seen to be above politics, like uh, quote unquote national security spending is, you get a free pass. And what you were saying earlier about taxes, I mean, think how much of a debate it's been during the course of Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill about how do you pay for it? How do you pay for it? Um, House Democrats are scrambling to find pay fors, et cetera, et cetera. No war since Vietnam has been paid for with a corresponding tax increase, not the Gulf War and not any of the post 9-11 wars, which have cost in themselves trillions. So what that just reinforces the idea that, OK, what what fiscal rules um, are, are we applying uh, to different scenarios? And, and is that worth it um, for me? You know, safety is more relevant to um, things that can be provided, necessary goods and services that can be provided with social spending. It's not necessarily secured, at least in large part, to increase in the military budget to uh, near north of $8 billion per year. Now, there's also the issue of, um, you know, those lawmakers who worry about being reelected. You know, you see someone like Bernie Sanders um, very consistently call out the bloated military budget. We also see poll after poll showing that Americans support social spending, depending upon how you ask the question, they may or may not support a reduction to the military budget. They certainly don't approve of wars. Republicans and Democrats um, don't approve of what we use those uh, weapons for that we buy with the military budget. Um, you know, it seems as if the only thing that lawmakers would be beholden to is not public opinion, but was it military contractors? Right, I believe so. And the disconnect between members of Congress um, and the public in terms of uh, perspectives towards military spending, wars, empire broadly, I think drag into uh, drag in the class issue. Um, the fact of the matter is that most Americans do not get paid by military contractors. And what I mean by military contractors are for-profit firms that receive over half the Pentagon budget per year. So half the, the Pentagon gives away over half its budget to private sector firms that provide goods and services, whether that's military equipment or, or cooking meals for soldiers um, at El Udud uh, in uh, Qatar, the air base. So, a lot of these members of Congress are, are especially the ones on the on the relevant committees to military spending, the Authorizations and Appropriations Committee. Um, they're effectively um, deciding how much money there is for for-profit contractors, and then those for-profit contractors are profiting off those uh, off those allocated public funds, and then giving that money back, or at least a chunk of it. Uh, in the form of campaign contributions to the very same members of Congress who just wrote the law that uh, helped them meet and exceed their bottom line. What do you think, Stephen, needs to be done? I mean, certainly there was just such a controversy, so you know, so much headline news around the cost of the infrastructure bill, the cost of the Build Back Better bill, both of which have been whittled down so badly that they really don't resemble the original progressive intent um, the reason that people voted for Biden. Um, and, and now we're just sort of seem to be forced to accept that that is the way things happen in Congress and that there's just very little discussion around the military budget. It's just not a topic that gets discussed. The New York Times and the Washington Post 
won't put it on their front pages that the military budget keeps increasing, is bloated, and comes at the cost of social spending. What, uh, what, what is the work that your organization does to try to remedy this? I think we work through um, our allies in Congress, the squad, Ocasio-Cortez, Tlaib, Omar, uh, Ayanna Presley, uh, and Cori Bush as of late. Um, but also the work I do through the think tank and also through my speaking security newsletter, if you've seen any of those charts floating around Twitter or the internet somewhere uh, that often just follow the money regarding military spending and social spending, I think we're trying to just basically educate the public and give them you know, reliable data um, that they can take to their member of Congress because this, this work takes time. And, and when you read about the military budget, you know, uh, even if it just passes the same story one week, you could find, you know, eight different, uh, numbers. Um, what, what I try to do with the newsletter and what we try to do with the think tank is not only make good policy, but just provide people with the right data, put it in context, um, and hopefully move the debate just by giving people the, uh, the tools to uh, channel their anger towards the existing system, I guess. I mean, Biden himself is someone that, um, you know, didn't tout raising the military budget when he ran for office. He might have talked about being tough on China, but that's basically code for raising the military budget. He knows that if he were to go out and campaign on we need to spend more money on our military, that it wouldn't work quite well. So they seem to be sort of relying on public ignorance about this, right? It seems that way, um, and especially the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, um, social spending could follow the same rules as military spending in that, you know, there's always enough money. Uh, but because Congress is only choosing to spend a certain amount, effectively, military spending is stealing from social spending. Um, and that's a that's that's an, that's a perspective that the White House will never share, um, because if Biden wanted to, he could have uh, released a budget that was well south of 700 billion which in itself would be you know higher than reagan uh uh higher than reagan and dump that money into climate or healthcare or whatever um and provide way more jobs and way more useful services to people but he didn't um so that kind of reflects the limits of his politics um where it's uh he won't do anything productive for the left unless there's a sufficient uh, mass movement that draws just a lot of attention to uh, his shortcomings are you heartened by the work that the squad is doing? And I'm, it seems as though they, they do tend to be able to break into American consciousness a little bit more. Um, people admire them. They tend to walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, and, and, and those sorts of spokespeople in Congress for things like cutting the military budget, we really didn't have them before 2018. Uh, I mean, there were maybe a few lone people uh, like Bernie Sanders, sometimes Maxine Waters or Barbara Lee, uh, but not as there, there seems to be a little bit more of a, um, you know, a, a critical mass, if you will. Right. And I, I think for members of Congress like the squad who are just very politically talented and overall just seem like sharp people. Um, I, I think there's a lot of uh, hope for them and a lot of possibility that they punch above their weight politically, um, in a sense, because what they say draws so much attention and what they do can draw so much public attention that uh, even if the politics just seem like a dead end for a certain issue, what they do is in a way normative and it sort of changes the political reality just by talking about it. So the more they talk about 
uh, say the military versus social spending disparity, I think the more it helps us, it really does. And it's, you know, it's, it's easy to pick, you know, pick apart the squad and say they should have done this and should have done that, but they have immense amount of pressure on them to do basically all the heavy lifting for, you know, progressives, uh, um, in sort of the public, uh, in the public, uh, the, pro the congressional progressive caucus is sort of a progressive caucus in name only. It's basically, you know, we hear about the progressive caucus expanding in size, but what matters is expanding the squad, at least, uh, uh in electoral sense. Um, so I'm heartened by, I'm heartened by what they've done. There's a lot more to do, but you know, it's hard to you know find fault with them because they just don't have a lot of resources at their disposal. So there needs to be more an, an interaction and sort of a, a team-oriented effort between them um, and civil society groups, uh, whether they be think tanks or or advocacy organizations um, or or labor groups, even uh, to really shift the needle on on military spending. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find out more about the Security Policy Reform Institute? You can find us. Uh, uh, on the internet at securityreform.org. Um, you can also find my newsletter, which I publish, you know, a couple times a week, once or twice a week, uh, that usually just has a very short analysis and a chart that follows the money in some way, uh, and hopefully provides clarity to ongoing discussions. You can find that on Substack. It's called Speaking Security, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Stephen Semler. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. My guest has been Stephen Semler, co-founder of the Security Policy Reform Institute. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.